Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tuned Into Tennis. This is your host, Miles David. And today I have a really interesting episode planned out for you guys. I want to take us through the first week of action, uh, the first week of competitiveness, the first week of entertainment all across the Australian Open 2023. And not only are you going to be hearing my voice, I've included someone to hop on the podcast with me as a guest for the first time. Um, I have Xavier Liverman and Xavier has been a really, really great part of the digital community that I'm uh, gradually growing around my podcast and tune into tennis. So I thought it would be a great way to kind of kick off this season of um, talking to fans and talking to people in my in my digital community amongst tennis with Xavier because he's so knowledgeable, very articulate. Uh, in his day job, outside of talking to me on Twitter and uh, running down matches in a very succinct and knowledgeable way, he is a university professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And I think I've talked enough about you a little bit. You know, I don't want to run it too long. I'll let you I'll let you take it away as far as uh, introducing yourself and letting listeners hear your voice for the first time. So take it away. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Um, and thanks, Miles, for having me. Um, as I said, um, off the air, but I want to say it here. Um, I'm always so appreciative of the platforms you've created and the conversations that we've been able to have around tennis. Um, I think the thing that I'll just say is that I've been a tennis fan since the 80s. Um, and so I've seen a few different generations. I kind of first started watching kind of post McEnroe Borg. Um, and, um, and I've just been a fan through the various different generations. And I always find a new player to adopt when my, my previous favorite kind of moves on. Um, and so I've been able to find someone that I'm really, uh, or a set of people, I should say with each generation that I really kind of like, and that's been one of the things that I think is so great about tennis is the sort of evolution of your fandom, you know, throughout the years. I love that you use the word evolution because I know you and I both know we're going to hit on a conversation that kind of uh, is rooted in evolution, but we're going to get to that towards the end of the conversation. Um, you said you've been a fan for multiple generations, which is something I love about tennis and in sports in general. You can kind of see the evolution of your favorite player, your favorite athlete, your favorite team, so on and so forth. Um, but with that being said, can you remember the Well, Actually, we're going to do present day and then uh we're gonna go back a little bit can you remember the the last match you just watched on television or live and then uh after that we can do the first match you've ever watched that, that comes to your memory because sometimes tennis is a revolving I, I call it the hamster wheel so sometimes there's some matches i come come across i'm like oh yeah i remember that and i didn't know that i remember that so yeah go ahead you got it yeah um so last match was center cc pass um okay. um i stayed up as late as i could but after center went down the two sets i kind of was like i gotta go to sleep now <laughs> um it's like so this is looking a lot like last year so glad to see he came back i'm sure we'll discuss that a little bit more but um that was the last match i watched and the first the first one um so I don't remember it exactly, but I think it was the the year Becker kind of won Wimbledon for the first time. Um, I do remember there was, I do remember him being a story and I remember it being a story that was big enough to kind of penetrate past the, the confines of, walls yeah, of tennis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The confines of tennis. And so I remember being aware, I was like, who is this person? You know, what's this? I, I was sort of vaguely aware of the sport, but I think I saw this young guy you know, doing his thing. And I thought, this is just so interesting. I can't imagine being 17 and, and winning Wimbledon, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so it just, it, it captured me. I must say Becker wasn't my favorite player, but, but just seeing him uh, was the thing that actually got me started um, in, in tennis. I can totally see just from, I mean, obviously if anybody knows me, I'm a millennial. So the Boris, uh, the Boris Becker McEnroe board days aren't my uh, forte. If it wasn't for YouTube, I would have no idea how they play, but um, I can totally see in that era, how Boris Becker was as electric as they said he was because everybody around him didn't play like that. Um, I have a personal uh, feeling towards Boris Becker at the current state of things, but I'll 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 leave that alone. <laughs> but he's a he's a really good player and uh, deserves his spot in history for what he what he's accomplished. Um, but first, let's dive into some of the meat and potatoes of the interesting storylines from the first week of the 2023 Australian Open. I have a couple of things just dotted down here that we can dive deeper into as we go forward. The first thing I want to mention is kind of just the overall landscape of how we watched the Australian Open um, and kind of comparing that to how it's been done in previous years and how we see it moving forward. And that stems from ESPN and their broadcasting and some of the issues associated with their broadcasting this year. Because if you are a, honestly, if you use any kind of social media, I'm sure over the last week, if you follow a tennis fan, they may have posted some sort of begrudging uh, comment or statement or something like that, along with how, many issues they're having just watching, simply watching the tennis if they have an ESPN subscription and not an ESPN Plus subscription. Thankfully, um, shout out to my sister because we uh, divvy up the the payments between Netflix and Disney Plus and ESPN and all that stuff. So thankfully, I have access to it. But a lot of people don't. And that's been causing issues that I've, that I've seen a lot. So how do you feel about, well, kind of just to go in that a little bit further before I hand it over to you, ESPN has the rights, the sole broadcasting live rights to the Australian Open and two other Grand Slams, Wimbledon and the US Open, Tennis Channel, which is a American uh, specific tennis channel, no pun intended, um, has the French Open covered. Um, and ESPN, I believe, just uh, extended their contract with, Australian Open to, I want to say, serve broadcasting until the 2030, 2031, something like that. So they're going to be around for a while. It's just that on the main channel, the channel that you don't have to go to ESPN Plus for or kind of, you know, if you have a very traditional sense of cable, there's not a, like, you know, you can turn on the box like the old people say. That's been that's been doing it on ESPN2 mostly. I think there was one day where they where tennis had like a, maybe an hour or three block of coverage on ESPN, but ESPN two is primarily where it lives and it hasn't been living there for long throughout this tournament. So I'm interested in how you feel. Have you had any experience with using ESPN two or watching on ESPN two? I'm interested in how you kind of have sifted through the coverage issues. Yeah. And I, and I hate to sound like that, you know, that old man at the, <laughs> you know, at the family reunion, um, but I think it's actually really disappointing what ESPN has done with with tennis, because I remember back in the 80s, they had pretty much everything but the slams They had, and, and they, they covered it beautifully. You know, tennis was always pretty much on every Saturday or Sunday, um, you know, uh, during the height of the season, you know, kind of through the late from the late spring to the, you know, late summer. And so uh to look at the coverage now, it's very disappointing. And and the, I would I would extend the criticism to Tennis Channel as well because a lot of times they'll put the most desirable matches on their terrestrial station, and if you don't have or vice versa, right? So mm -hmm. the, they'll do that thing that ESPN does of like 
putting the the things that people are most interested in on ESPN three behind um, the paywall behind or the paywall that yeah, yeah that and it's like well I'm already paying the you know in my case to access package. this yeah. yeah so now you want me to pay more so I think that um, it gets to just I think a larger question about how much tennis fans have to suffer in order to consume the sport that they love. I mean, no other, no other sport requires this kind of, um, you know, multiple memberships and, and, you know, crazy different bootleg streams and things like that. (laughs) If you, if you really want to consume, unless you want to just spend a lot of money on like three or four different services, um, in order for you to really properly consume the sport in North America, you have to actually, be very resourceful, you know, um, resourceful and have a budget for subscription services, because there's four that pop up in my mind that you need in order to watch Grand Slam tennis. And if you really want to be acclimated to what goes on weekly outside of the Grand Slam, you need tennis channel. Not only do you need ESPN plus for three out of the, excuse me, not only do you need access to ESPN for three out of the four Grand Slams to get every court or the court that specifically you want and to get a uh, match coverage outside of the small windows that ESPN provides, you have to have a subscription to ESPN plus, which I believe is like 1099 and on the tennis channel side of things, kind of the same concept. If it's not being showed on their main uh, traditional channel, it's on tennis channel plus, which is $110 a year. I think so, I mean, th- yeah, those things add up. And unless you are sharing passwords, which they don't really encourage, um, which they should, because it's not like I don't think the sharing of the passwords is going to make the apps any more glitchy than they already are. So that's another thing. Like, it's not like you have to pay, but then when you pay, you're not getting some kind of elite service, at least in my experience. Tennis Channel app on my television, on my phone, on any other kind of medium is glitchy as well as ESPN+. Plus. Sometimes I'm watching a, a you know a, a match midpoint and it kind of just goes away. Um, and none of those things are helping tennis viewership, I believe. So I think there really needs to be a conversation with people who are invested in growing the sport. And that phrase is thrown around so much in tennis because there's this overarching uh, thought sometimes that I hear from people that tennis is dying or is a dying sport. And I don't personally think it's to that extreme. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where I can't find a racket and a tennis ball. And I think some of the boost that's been happening over the past three years is in part due to the pandemic because it was one of those, you know, socially distant sports that could be played. But I do believe we're in a very critical juncture as far as the media coverage, of course, broadcasting and the overall storylines that are attached to tennis. I feel like because of the recent retirement of Serena and Roger and the looming retirement of some other great players that have been around for 15, 20 years, people are starting to feel like, so what's going to keep me interested in this sport? And if there's broadcasting issues, that's not going to help that go away any further. If you can't, if you're in, if you're already wondering, so what's going on in this sport? Why should I care? And then when you try, you can't really see anything, but John McEnroe and his brother be talking heads when a live match is actually happening. That's not bringing anybody, the very few people, I should say, the the likelihood that that's going to make somebody go out and uh, become a a tennis player or a fan is low, you know? So what any ideas of to, I mean, because I I try to be somebody that thinks of solutions, but if you were uh, given access or granted access to maybe like a board meeting or some kind of network meeting, what would you say to to maybe alleviate some of the issues? Because there's a lot of people complaining, not just people that look like you and I, it's a lot of people, you know? 
Yeah, I my biggest, I think, um, solution would be first and foremost um, for the various different bodies. And I know when you have seven different, you know, uh, bodies, it's difficult, right? But um, for each of the different bodies that are invested in the sport to make sure that at every country they sell, sell the rights to the sport to, that it's on one platform, right? Like that I don't have to have four or five different things, you know? So if you're going to create a set of broadcasting rights in the United States, so let's say, um, can we get it in one place? You know, like I, I, I mm-hmm. just, you know, can we have a place that we go to? Um, and I'd like to even see either Amazon prime or, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be, you know, um, team Amazon, <laughs> yeah, team Amazon. That's not the, that's not the point here. Um, but I do think that some sort of centralized streaming, space would be ideal i'm totally fine with with maybe the atp wta and slams coming together to create their own platform um but i just feel like it needs to be on one platform i feel like i have to have to you know just kind of you have to be a producer you have to be like your own online producer to kind of put together what you want to watch for a tennis match and while you were saying that there's a streaming service called tennis tv which is like straight to the point you kind of get what it's going to be about before you even press the app right and it's not utilized one for both wta tours the women and atp tours it's exclusively for the atp tours they don't even have access to the grand slams they have a thriving media presence on social media like their engagement on twitter instagram and youtube are very high their videos get you know a lot of views but they're only tapping into half of the sport. And then the really, really important parts that are the pinnacle of the sport, they can't tap into. So maybe if we could work around the meat and potatoes and kind of like the the good things they have going and branch off from there, we might be in a better space. But it seems like no one's even thinking about that. They're kind of just rooted in money or something like yeah, that. You know? I, I love the point that you're making, though, because I definitely could see tennis tv adding the wta negotiating with the four slams and the itf for like davis cup and all that stuff and and getting it all on that platform you know because they they have a great social media presence um their podcasts are great you know um the kinds of information you get the 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 fact that you have these sort of i feel like interesting insights from coaches and players Mm -hmm. Um, so I could see that if that was expanded to the WTA and slams could be very successful, but one, one click, one click and you're there, either yeah. on the website, the app, the some anything, you know, tennis TV for all <laughs> that yeah, could be the hashtag, the hashtag that they push forward. <laughs> I mean, you're giving away ideas. I was going to say, I, I was going to say, if you're listening, <laughs> just, just contact me. I'm, I'm easily accessible. Unlike tennis. Um, <laughs> So let's uh, move forward a little bit and talk about one of the other storylines that have kind of been uh, hot topics in the first week of the Australian Open, and that is Andy Murray. Andy Murray has played a lot of epics at the Australian Open over his career. I think there's just something special about the Andy Murray of today that is obviously it's, it's been well it's been well talked about and documented that he's struggled with his body issues, having a surgery that included getting a metal hip implanted into his um into his body and him now wanting to still play in spite of that after a lot of people um and you know knowledgeable people telling him that 
it probably wasn't a good idea. Um, I'm still debating on if that's a good idea or not. But I mean, he's he's making it work. And obviously, with me bringing him into this into this podcast, his there's still a energy around him when people watch him. Now, with that being said, he could have been out of this tournament in the very first round if it wasn't for Matteo Berrettini kind of being a little bit asleep. For the first two sets, just not kind of be true, being truly engaged in what felt like a, a really uh, it should have been an alarming matchup for him. Um, but with that, he kind of got on the right ship and was able to bring about a match point in the fifth set, but completely flubbed it backhand into the net, which is kind of, you know, um, interesting. We think about his career and how his backhand has been a point of contention for some people in discussing him. Um, what did you what are some of the takeaways you've gotten from Andy Murray's first two matches. I mentioned the one with Berrettini that could have gone either way. And then there was another epic with Kokonakis that really could have gone the other way that Kokonakis, the Australian player, is probably still thinking about right now as we speak. But I'm interested in what you think. Did did you watch any of those matches and kind of what were your takeaways from Andy Murray in the first week of the Australian Open? I think that, yes, I I did watch actually both the Berrettini and Kokonakis matches. And in Quite a bit of the Bautista Gut one, too. Um, Sorry, Murray. I was asleep for that one. <laughs> and gotta, I felt it coming. I felt the end of the joy, end of the road coming. <laughs> yeah, that's not the person you want to play if you've had two back-to-back five-set epics. Um, so listen, I mean, I think that for one, it, it for me, I had a bit of a catch-22 about Murray's um, epic victories. On the one hand, I felt like he still has it, right? The fight is still there. Um, you know, he's still there. It's, it's, and, and that was very heartwarming to see. Right. And, and I began to wonder, like, is this going to be him rewriting his history in Australia, the way that Nadal rewrote his history in Australia last year? I was like, could we have two really crazy stories like that back to back? Um, cause certainly, you know, had he been fit enough to, let's say, make it through to the semis, I would have given him a chance against a, an injured Djokovic right now, an injured Djokovic. Quote-unquote. Yeah, you yes. guys can't see the air quotes there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I, all of that to say that I, I, I was really impressed with the fight, and it feels like, okay, he's back in a particular kind of way. But at the same time, I was disappointed that he still gets himself dragged into these long strung out matches you know really the Berrettini match should have been over in straights you know (laughs) Um, it it should not have become an epic um you know less so with the Kokonakis match but I wonder if he had had more energy from the first match if that would have become as much of a a struggle a struggle that, that it was right um so I think that that's what what I felt about it and I also actually felt like Interestingly enough, um, I learned a lot. I learned similar things kind of about, or or I should say, I, I felt that the the matches showed me some things about Berrettini and Kokonakis as well, right? As much as they showed me some things about Murray. You know, the the backhand still, that struggle, you know, on, on Berrettini. And also this sort of, this, this, um, I think really troubling tendency for him to be come out of the gates really slow on really, really important matches, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, thinking about the, you know, the Nadal match, the last, you know, so, so yeah, I just, I, I, and then when I think about Kokonakis, sort of all the close calls, right. You know, and the almost the, moments, the almost, the moments. almost moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, 
And so for me, I think the Andy Murray story was so fascinating for what it told us about him, but also what it told us about his opponents. Mm-hmm. It, it shows that he's still, there is some really good edge in the group of people he surrounded himself with. Obviously, a lot of his great victories and some of his most heart-wrenching losses are to the big three, Roger, Rafa, and uh, Novak. But I feel like being so close to them in competition, a lot of that uh, that drive and just desire, will to win is kind of baked into them, even with all the other things he's having to struggle through, like his body issues, age and stuff like that. I do want to say, though, I do feel like he's at a very interesting point in his career, given the age, because he's extending so much energy. And like you mentioned earlier, this could have been his Nadal rewriting history with the Australian Open because it's been well written that that was his least favorite slam, his most his least successful one, only having one prior to 2022. And and Andy Murray has been to, I believe, an astounding five or six finals without actually winning the championship. So there's, you know, there's something there, too. But he's extending so much energy just to kind of be out in the first week. And I don't know with a guy that's been so used to getting to the second week throughout most of his career. I don't believe he has even been seated at a Grand Slam since coming back the coming back from the surgery. And he's publicly made that a a goal of his for a while now. And it's it doesn't seem like we're any closer to that. So I just wonder, um, especially with all the with all the emotion and all of the attention to his uh two epics that he played, especially in part because some of the points from those epics were uh entertaining. Like they probably had made your explore play your explore page or your for you page or something like that um on your TikToks and Instagram. So it's something to, it's something to see and remember. But I'm just wondering where do I go from here? Like if I was him with a with a family and all, I'm sure he has other avenues to keep himself busy as a celebrity athlete. I'm wondering where he goes with that. It'll be interesting to kind of follow, but I do think um, if that's the last we see of Andy Murray at the Australian Open, I'm okay with that. I feel like that is, I'm not like hoping for that, obviously, because athletes, especially once they are super accomplished, like Andy Murray, three-time Grand Slam champion, two-time gold medalist, one, former world number one in the world, you should you kind of reserve the right to do what you want to do on your on your time, especially in regards to that sport. But um, I also don't want to see somebody that has been etched into my tennis memory be hobbled. You know, that's not fun either. So I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll be following and whatever he chooses to do um, will, will be the best for him. So I actually want to take a little bit of a break before we get into the rest of these topics. I'll take a quick break for us to recharge and then we'll be back on in a second. Be right back, guys. All right, let's hop back into some of these hot topics from the Australian Open first week. Uh, one of the major hot topics that may, may have come across your cellular device or laptop or iPad was Nadal losing early in the second round to American Mackenzie McDonald. And if you've been following week to week, honestly, like Xavier and I have, um, Nadal losing early in the tournament isn't truly the shocker. I think one of the things that's baked into why it was such a headline was how the opponent, the timing of it, and also the injury timeout he took, especially when he kind of came up very um, sharply off of a return. And it looks like it may be a, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to add an injury on to him because I was going to say like an abductor or adductor, but I think it's just a lower extremity strain that needs about six to eight weeks to heal. 
Am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, I think that they called it some sort of. I, I do think they said an abductor, but I'm not. Okay, like, don't don't quote me on that either. We don't we don't want to give Nadal additional injuries. Yeah, I, I don't want to put it out there, and then he <laughs> yeah. gets one of those. I'm like, dang, we said that on the podcast. Um, but yeah, that adds to a long list of injuries just in less than 12 months that he's picked up. I mean, a, a lot of the major ones have been a rib injury he got in Indian Wells. He had, I mean, his foot issue has been a problem since the beginning of his career and almost stopped him from having a professional career. But in uh, May-ish, in the clay season of 2022, in a match against Denis Shapovalov, his foot flared up again to the point where he had to get injections to even finish two weeks of Roland Garros and ended up winning it. So he deserves credit for that as well. Uh, he has an ab injury at Wimbledon that forces him to pull out by the semifinals and not be able to even play. And then he loses in the fourth round of Francis Tiafoe at the U.S. Open and doesn't win a match for the rest of the year, except a match that doesn't really count too much. He beat Casper Ruud in the ATP finals at the end of the year, but Casper Ruud has, had already established his position in the semifinals of that tournament due to, due to the round robin. So it just keeps on a list. Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention, at the very beginning of 2023, he lost to Cam Norrie and Alex Dimonar of Australia at the United Cup. So it's just been losses and injuries abound for the last 12 months. And honestly, when I did my fantasy bracket draw pick, I had Nadal losing in the second round, but not to that American, Mackenzie McDonald. And shout out to him for kind of rising to the to the occasion and kind of putting all of the extra things that can probably go through your mind when a legend like Nadal is hobbled and you still have to close out the match because it's you're, you're, you're a competitor, right? An opportunity for presenting himself or the opportunity is presenting itself, I should say. Um, I had him losing to Nakashima. Uh, Brandon Nakashima is out of San Diego, um, and he is a very talented young guy. I believe he's younger than 22 or something like that. And I, I saw Nakashima kind of having his moment in the sun of being like, hey, here I am, include me in the a rising American conversation. But I'm not mad that it's Mackenzie McDonald. I just am kind of, um, you know, part of me, and you can you can chime in, part of me feels like we've seen this story before several times with Nadal, like, it always seems to happen at some point in a hard court season sometimes where he just gets injured, he rests up, and then you see him in the next hard court season or, or the timing results in him coming back for the clay court season and he does what he's known for. So I'm I'm not super stressed in that regard, but I also do feel from just a, like a humanity perspective, it must be tiring to have to always deal with that and be of a certain age, be a new father in his, in his uh, life now. He just... Uh, became a father to a new baby boy, maybe less than less than four months ago, something like that. Um, and here he is competing and getting injured, especially the guys that he normally feels like he'd have a wonderful chance against to move forward. So how do you feel about Nadal um, from this tournament and going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, look, he says he wants to be out there and he wants to keep trying. I I think that he, I retrospectively, I think he should have just taken more time off once the um, ab injury sort of came to be a thing. I think he might have rushed the U.S. Open preparation and, um, you know, rushed to kind of get back and play the ATP finals. I just, I, I think I would have actually been okay with him maybe just kind of shutting things down and after Wimbledon yeah, and, <laughs> and rest, making sure everything gets patched up you know you didn't have any points really to defend anyway you know from from that time um so 
you know, why not, you know, why not just kind of rest up? So what I'm hoping for him is that he actually just takes the time to fully heal um, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe tries to come back for Estoril, like a 250, maybe. Um, so, you know, I think that'd be a good, you know, little 250 for him to come back to and play and get some confidence, you know, um, at. So we'll see if that's what he does. But I think that for me, we've seen this story before, I think you said, but it does feel like it, it feels like it's a compiling, compounding number of injuries right and you just wonder in a short span yeah in a very and, short span and you just wonder mentally and emotionally if he can kind of pull himself you know back again and again and again um my sense and i've 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 stated this on twitter for people who follow me there but um and i may have even said it out loud in a space here or there but my sense is that he he wants to hold on for the olympics in 2024 um, and I think that if he can make it there, I don't I would be surprised if he goes too much further beyond that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, I'd love for him to do so, right? Like as a fan, I'd love for him to keep playing as long as he wants to. Um, but I do have to imagine that all of this is taking uh, a mental and emotional toll to constantly have to do this over and over again. And there comes a point where it's like, why am I doing all of this? Right. Um, Especially with what he's accomplished. Cause you know, I was thinking, isn't this a kind of a testament to his just love of competition and what he does? Cause after all he's accomplished, why else would you rush back to a tour, especially in a part of the season where he's great on all surfaces, but he's phenomenal on clay. Why would you rush to go back to the U S open a place where you've been very successful in your own right or rush to play the ATP finals? It's kind of just like, when I think about it, I just had it on my own epiphany. He must really, and I guess it, it does make sense that he really loves the sport because he's been doing it for so long, but he has other things now, literally, that he could be doing for large chunks of time. And at this point in his career, I think it, he should be playing to his strengths, honestly. Kind of like how Roger decided to just skip clay court seasons when he was fit enough to play them, but just realized it wasn't going to be where he probably bore a lot of his fruit for his uh, for his labor. I think the dog could pull something like that and just play a healthy clay court schedule, maybe play Wimbledon um, and focus on the slams and not much else. I mean, his his main rival, Novak Djokovic, is doing all but that. I mean, it's been exacerbated with him not being able to play a lot of tournaments because of his stance on the vaccine and not wanting to get it. But I don't know. The dog should probably play even less. And he doesn't play that much, but play even less. Because, I mean, at this point, is it really going to matter if he like? Are people going to remember that he won, like you say, a two fifty in Estoril, or is he going to? Are people going to remember that he won the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati? Both great tournaments, but you know, and he also likes to get a rep for things. But you know, that's Nadal. I feel like he's going to go out on his own terms. And I will say, just to close this out. I think it's interesting that um, he has something else to think about with Roger officially not being on tour. So I wonder if that's going to play a part into how he chooses to. Uh, prioritize tennis you know so yeah um I, speak speaking go ahead, I, I just wanted to ask you did you want to say anything about rude i feel like we gave him a little bit short shrift in the in the conversation I forgot. 
Yikes. You know, we can tie Rude into two things because he's um, he's he lost early in the same round as Nadal. Uh, he lost to American Jensen Brooks, who also had a pretty good tournament um, and is a rising American in his own right. But Rude was number two seed, so that got a lot of headlines and he lost in four sets, especially to lose in four sets after having a lot of the momentum winning the third set. That was interesting. Um, and he comes off the heels of a magnificent 2022. Um, but he's also in the group of people that is uh, that was followed as professional tennis players in Breakpoint, the Netflix series that dropped this month. Um, and... He's not the only person to have, have lost early or not even make it into the main draw in those bunches of people. And of course, if you've been aware, there's this uh, quote unquote Netflix curse going around and Rude obviously succumbed to either that or a mixture of playing too much tennis in the offseason. That's yet to be seen. <laughs> but there's a lot of people that were in that Netflix group. I mean, we had Curios withdraw before the tournament even started due to a knee issue, which I'm kind of side eyeing. A little bit. Are you with me in side eyeing that? I, 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 yes, a little, but I wonder if it is the kind of thing that got exacerbated by that practice set, you know, with, with Djokovic and what's that, was that really the best decision if you were nursing an injury, you know? But isn't it to me like the storyline of Kyrgios? Because I don't particularly love his persona, but I do have to admit that his tennis is electric, right? It's so interesting that a guy that boasts himself as the the number one ticket in tennis um, and the the, the must-see thing that's holding tennis on to his popularity and saving the sport in his in his eyes potentially gets injured at a practice match and can't even play his home slam. Yeah. Like, you know, that's kind of like a I don't I don't know the official like vernacular for, it, but it's just it just it's interesting. It's kind of a coincidence, ironic. I'm not sure which one, but it's it's like, really, dude? Like, he talks a really, really big game. And this is probably the first Australian Open that he comes in with real tangible uh, form, you know? Because a lot of times he just, he's just one of those names that's a wild card, you know, literally or figuratively, he's a wild card. And he withdraws. So I guess he's out for, I think, what, six to eight weeks, maybe until Indian Wells, I believe is what his uh, physiotherapist said. There's also Fritz that was upset in the second round to hometown favorite or home country favorite. I believe he was born in Sydney, Alexi Popperin. Did you watch some of that match between Fritz and Popperin? I actually did watch the match. Um, it, oh, cool. Um, I watched most of it, actually. Um, and what I will say is uh, Fritz is a little bit, I can't quite figure out what's happening with him at the slams. I, I really have to, and I don't know if he's putting too much pressure on himself. I I don't know what's going on, but um, look, Pop Hyron is one of those players. Hits a very flat, hard, heavy ball, big serve. So these conditions really favored him. Um, I don't think that the return is Taylor's strongest thing anyway, right? So he's not getting a lot of... I don't get a sense of someone who creates a ton of break points and, and you know, gets a lot of, of, of breaks, right? I think he gets breaks because of the service pressure he's able to put because his own service games are so, are so strong. Um, but yeah, I saw it and I just thought... So look, I think he got a little unlucky, right? He's playing this, yeah. and I don't, if you didn't see any of the match, it, it's, it was the closest thing to an old-school Davis Cup, you know, kind of tie that you could imagine, right? It's this raucous crowd. 
um, that's really, really in support of Papyrin or Papyrin. I don't know exactly how it's pronounced. Um, I didn't realize he was Russian, so it might be Papyrin. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> or Russian born, yeah, yeah. I should say. Um, and um, and so it was a, it was you know it was a situation where the crowd was clearly not in favor of him. They, I, I mean, I didn't think they were per se obnoxious, but you know they just. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think I thought he got a little unlucky, but then I'm also just wondering, hey, it's been two slams in a row where, you know, the conditions you've, you've underwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. And where, you know, there were real opportunities, you know, um, you know, given the way the draw shook out in, in both of those um situations or, or the way it's shaping up. So I I question mark on that, but I, I think that my my thing is that Poprin played at his extreme high level that he possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, I think got carried by the crowd a little bit too. That helped him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if he wins that match if they play it again 24 hours later, literally. Yeah, you know? it, it seemed like a, like you said, it seemed like a perfect storm for Poprin to get that win. Also against somebody like Fritz, who doesn't have the best record in Grand Slams. Really good ATP tour player is, is, is turning out to be. And I feel um, like I went out on too far of a limb thinking he could win the Australian Open. It was something about him, him his level of play at the United Cup. But I never really stopped to take into consideration that his experience at at Australia, for one, and Grand Slams as a whole isn't really... Um, wonderful. I don't think he's ever made anything beyond the fourth round at Australia, and he's only made it to, I, mean, I say only, but a quarterfinal showing once at Wimbledon is his best Grand Slam, um, and that, you know, that leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, but he's not the only one, not to put too much on Fritz. A lot of that Netflix curse, uh, ne- a lot of the uh, cast from that Netflix Breakpoint series uh, left a lot, a, lot, a lot to be desired in Anz Jabor. Number, number two seed uh, goes out early along with the other number two seed, Casper uh, Rude. Anz Jabora didn't feel like she had great form coming in either. So that wasn't a shock to me and also kind of got bit by a little bit of the, um, you know, the draw woe. She got second. She got former French Open finalist Marquetta Von Drusova in the second round, which, you know, she's coming in with some form a little bit. Yeah. You know? So did you watch any of that match? I didn't watch that match, but my sense, I watched her Adelaide matches and I saw some of her early stuff and she just didn't look like she was fit to be honest with you I I almost wonder if they should have just shut it down and and went back home Mm -hmm. um I mean I'm sure they traveled all the way out there they were like hey let's just let's just put you out there and see what happens let's just wait and see Mm -hmm. but my sense Mm -hmm. with her was that she was never she was never quite fit and anybody who could kind of push her a little bit or extend the match a little bit was going to have a good shot. You know, um, mm. uh, it, it seemed really clear to me. I mean, I, I think I'll just say about the Netflix curse is that they did just so happen to, I think, pick a set of players that I would say are not the most reliable Right. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so in some sense, we'll see if it's really a curse or or whether it's just kind of coincidence. Right. But I I did know because when I started thinking, I was like, OK, well, Sakari, we already know her woes, you know, at the, thing, you know, at the slams, her ability to kind of manage her nerves. I, I hope what I'm hoping is that Sakari is like a modern day Moresmo and she'll get a redemption arc. You know, because it's, it's very, often. it's very similar <laughs> to, it's very similar to Moresmo's kind of like, she could never really put it together. Uh, you know, she was always 
collapsing mentally, you know, and then she just kind of put it together in 2006. She didn't do it any other year, but she, <laughs> but she put it together in 2006 and gave herself a hall of fame career, you know? Um, yep. And so I'm hoping for, for Maria that she gets that, that she gets that, that arc, um, that she has that opportunity. Um, but you know, you're, you're dealing with Kyrgios who's injured, Tom Yanovich, who's never won a WTA, uh, tour in her title. in her many yeah. years i'm sorry i meant title yeah wta title and i think has only had i think her highest has been 33 or 32 like she's not even something like yeah, that she's yeah. not even made yeah. top 20 like 25 or 32 to even be seated mm-hmm. uh you, you know so just the mix of people that they chose were were people who you know we know what felix's you know struggles are sometimes at the slams you know he seems to be a bit feast or famine either he's you know, making his way to the semis, um, or he's kind of, or just not, yeah, or he's, or he's losing in like, you know, earlier than what you would expect for him. And he seems to be a bit of a, you know, feast or famine when it comes to the slam. So, you know, when you actually go over the list of players, maybe the only one that I would have said was kind of bankable based on results. And even she had some up and downs was owns, right. Um, You know, given Mm -hmm. that she made two, you know, two Grand Slam finals and, but, you know, she did have a first round loss at the French, right? So she's, mm-hmm. you know, she has some up and down too, but I mean, she would have been the person I would have thought would have been able to avoid the curse, but she was injured. So it'll be interesting whether they're able to get, whether they choose to do a second season, who they're 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 able to get to sign up. Cause we know tennis players are superstitious people, you know, yep. they have their routines. They, they, they can be very superstitious. So I could see someone being like, uh, maybe not, you know, uh, maybe I don't like, I was inclined to be a part of it, but maybe not. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be interesting moving forward, how that works. Um, another person I want to t- touch on that kind of, is associated with the Netflix curse and uh, the Breakpoint documentary, but hasn't been featured fully in a episode that's to come in the second uh, drop of episodes they do later on in the year is Francis Tiafo. And I feel like Francis Tiafo didn't have a bad tournament for a couple of reasons. I think his PR and his name and clicks per whatever, or SEO or something associated with Francis Tiafo is really good right now, especially due to his fashions and his play, but his fashions at the Australian Open were definitely a point of contention and point of entertainment which i loved because i haven't felt anyone do that besides serena in years and even venus to a point maybe maria sharapova like with what they wear when they first come onto the court to play their first match either makes you gasp in a oh that looks really good on them kind of way or what were they thinking kind of way either or i feel like is a good uh talking point for the sport and i feel like he me personally, a lot of people feel differently. I feel like he hit it on the nail with with uh, Nike. Nike did a really good job of picking of picking him to be the uh, poster boy for that pattern because everybody else had that pattern in certain areas of their outfit, like their skirt or their shorts or shoes or something like that. But he pretty much wore it full on and looked great on him. I wish he could have gone further, but um, in the tournament he ended up losing third round to Karen Hatchinoff, who is now, as we record this, a quarter finalist. So he's playing well. Um, and I think Karen Hatchinoff actually was the better player in that match against Tiafo in the third round. There were definitely some momentum swings that Tiafo could have 
taken advantage of. Did you watch that match, by the way, or any highlights of it? I saw the highlights of it, and I think I agree with you. Um, but mm-hmm. I knew the Hachinov match was going to be a problem for him. Um, he has not beaten Hachinov in in a five-set kind of slam. They've played twice at Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah. and he's lost both of them, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you know, clearly it's a bit of a matchup problem for him. Um, I personally think that Francis struggles with really consistent baseliners who don't give, who who aren't going to give you a lot of errors. And, and on his day, that's, that's Hachinov, right. You know, um, um, you know, I think, you know, he struggles a bit with that because sometimes his consistency in rally tolerance and in, in the, you know, in the sort of ground stroke rallies is not always there. Right. Um, and and so I was like, oh, I really wish, and I forgot who Hachinov played, but whoever it was, I was actually hoping that person would would be would be Francis's. Let me look at the draw. Would have been Francis's, um, because I I just knew he didn't have a great record against against Hachinov, and I I was nervous about that match. Um, it was Jason Kubler who uh, Hachinov beat in the second okay. round, and they played a really long seventy point uh, yes, rally. Yes. Which is in, which is insane, um, but that speaks to Hachinov's ability to be yep. extremely consistent. Um, and then I just want to add the fashion. I, I think we should remember that um, Francis now has Serena's agent, right? So she sure does. So, Jill Smaller, so, yes. That's been a really big part of increasing his profile is that he's now with this sort of high powered agent, and clearly they're making they're making some very specific moves to bring up his profile as far as the sort of his social presence, his media presence, et cetera, uh, which is great. I think it's great that he's getting it. And I thought the outfit looked amazing. I will say that, you know, it reminded me of the fact that, you know, I think Black folk, we wear print really well, you know? Um, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it looked good <laughs> on him. I thought they did a good job. I understand why people might have thought it was a little loud, but I think that, you know... Um, it's Australia, like, you know... Do it. Yeah. You're a professional tennis player living your dream. Why not? You know? Yeah. And I thought that it, I thought it cut, it looked really good on him. It fit him really well. Um, so mm-hmm. I thought he looked strong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if you did. I don't know if you saw him in Estoril um, last year, but when he had on that kind of uh, Kelly, is it Kelly green, that darker forest green, kind of that forest green Nike kit with the sweats underneath the kind of compression sweats and the headband on, he just, Oh yes. Like a little mini superhero on, you know, in that, that, (laughs) you know, in that, Mm -hmm. like, I thought he was like a, you know, going to come save the day. He just needed a, (laughs) he just needed a cape. Right. So look, I think that they're, they're doing some good things with him. I also honestly, as someone who um, enjoys talking about fashion, I'm, um, I like the fact that, you know, they're trying to do something with one of the men's players, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. for so long, the conversation is always kind of about what the women are wearing. And, and I, you know, we haven't really talked about men's outfits, I feel like, since some of those Federer days, you know, back mm-hmm. back when, when they were designing certain things about for him. So I like seeing, you know, Bertini and now Francis kind of, you know, doing these things that are kind of giving us something to talk about as far as fashion yep. besides just forehands and backhands. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I appreciate that a lot. So big on, big on big foe for, for pushing the, pushing the button a little bit on the fashion part of tennis. Um, so just switching gears, getting back to some of the 
forehands and backhands of it all because I feel like this is something he specializes in. Uh, this person I'm going to mention, Novak Djokovic, is through to the quarterfinals for the umpteen time at Australia. It's a little bit different for him this go around, which maybe it isn't that different because I remember. Go ahead. Fourth round right now. Oh, fourth round. Sorry. Yeah. Yikes. I, I gave him too much. <laughs> Sorry. Go. Maybe that means he's going to lose in the fourth round. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, but he's been dealing with a hamstring injury. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like this is something that happens a lot in his um, tournaments. There's always something on the side that kind of uh, he leans on for either personal value for motivation or to kind of uh, stray away from what the issues may be in case he loses, but it's so interesting. He doesn't really lose that often. So it's like, why would you use that as a tactic? But you know, if he's injured by all means, I appreciate the, uh, the effort to push past it. I think that's a mark of a champion. Um, and you know, in general, a good thing, if you feel like you can don't, don't, don't risk your, 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 uh, your limbs, but, uh, he's looked decent. I think he's dropped a set once in the second or third round against somebody I'm not really familiar with. I mean, let's be honest, his draw has been really favorable a lot of the people like i just said i i haven't even heard of and we're two people that watch tennis weekly so if we ever heard of them they are at a certain you know uh, a lower tier than maybe the top 100 uh that we pay attention to mostly so i mean what are, what are your opinions on novak do you think this is something this is a situation where we might as well just write his name on the title or is there something lurking beyond because if he um, wins his match against Alex Dimonor, which in itself poses some problems. He faces Holger Rune, potentially, or Rublev in the next round. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, so look, this is what I'll say. I will say that I watched a lot of that match against Dimitrov because I really felt like Dimitrov could have I thought he could have been someone to keep Novak out there, right? You know, using his slice, moving the ball around, basically kind of keep him out there, extend the match and see what's what's really going on with that hamstring, right? Um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, for him, he wasn't able to do that. Um, but look, it, I, I do think he's injured. I, I remember early in that match when he would be forced to kind of lean to his right, you, you know, he was clearly grim. You know, the, it was it was that grunt that wasn't like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't an exhale of, of air grunt. It was like, you know, like he was, Ooh, I'm, in yeah, pain. <laughs> I'm in pain, right? And so I thought, okay, this is actually maybe a little more serious than than what's being let on. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, look, you know, there are a couple of people in the draw that could make life really difficult for him. I, I think he does not want to see Roberto Bautista Goot. And if he gets through, if RBA, if RBA gets through that, that, portion of the draw and by seeding he should now i'm not saying yes. i'm not saying he will i think you know tommy paul and you know all these other folks are there lurking but but look mm -hmm. you know by form and by seeding he should be the semifinal opponent i i think that's someone who can do exactly that keep him out there you know extend the rallies um and and if he's not as fit as he needs to be that could be that could be a little more of a tussle than what I, I think he's looking for. But I'm kind of like, I've not seen any evidence that anybody can step up and, and knock him off. So the only caveat I give is that, you know, last night's match notwithstanding, I do think Tsitsipas is playing at a level that I haven't quite seen him play at on an outdoor hardcore event before. Mm -hmm. Um 
he's clearly now the, to me the favorite to make the final um in that in half, that of, the half draw, of the draw, draw i would say so i look i i i almost wish he was meeting novak in a semi because i think that's a little bit easier to kind of overcome than like i i think the jitteriness that he has in finals he does not have the greatest finals record um you know even on the main tour you know yep. um and so I, I I just don't know if he'll be able to hold it together mentally, but if he's able to, he could potentially push Novak, but he's like the only one. I, I'm almost like halfway. Let's just say I've, I put his first name on the trophy already. Yes, yeah. there's an N-O-V-N-A-N-A-K. Yeah, first of all. I think, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, he's still in a way in his prime. So if he wins this Australian Open, I won't be surprised, but I also wouldn't be mad because I feel like if he loses to somebody that is um his junior which ultimately ultimately looks like he will um i think that'll be good for the narrative of new faces in the sport i'm not gonna lie like i'm not pushing for him to lose but i do think going back to something i said earlier we're in a critical juncture as far as storyline so if we get something new and exciting poured into the veins of tennis i'm all for that at this point um even if that means novak doesn't get history you know i kind of want serena's 23 record to be left alone (laughs) yeah male male or female male or female (laughs) yeah no i i could see that and i just also want to say i kind of overlooked luna as well i think luna could give could give djokovic a tussle as well if assuming they both make that quarterfinal match um Mm -hmm. so yeah i'd like to see it yeah i'd I'd sign up to see it uh something else i'd sign up to see and i think you would be right along with me is the evolution of coco versus radicanu that was a match that we saw the first time that those two women have gone head to head at a match not even a grand slam at a match period on the on the wta circuit and i think it was actually (sighs) For the first time, maybe not for the first time, but for a time, I walked away very interested in what that matchup could look like moving forward, mostly probably because of my affinity for both of them, how they've kind of worked their way through the sports, through the sports as far as uh relevance in totally two different ways obviously with coco uh being you know incremental success incrementally successful and radicanu having a breakthrough at the 2021 us open i'm interested to see what that happens because i feel like the points got better and better as they kind of got uh more adjusted to each other's games and that bodes well for what happens in the future i, I also think the two of them were very excited at the thought of playing each other like they they got through their first round matches and was like, okay, cool. I got that under my belt, but now it's time to see and test myself against one of the best, you know? Um, so I'm excited. Did you watch a lot of that match? I, I know it was at a, uh, oh, we on the, you're on the West yeah, Coast. Yeah, so yeah, 3 yeah, a.m. Yeah. is not terrible. No, no, it's not <laughs> terrible at all for me. Um, actually, Australia is probably, and because I'm more of a night owl, better for me than, mm-hmm. than the European slams, to be honest with you. Because um, I was at that six in the morning, seven in the morning stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, um, I did see the match. I thought, I'll just say this. Emma was able to kind of, you saw how Coco got really tight on that forehand toward the end, trying to close out. And I think that was ultimately her undoing in the tournament. And, you know, look, I hope she she can figure that out because, you know, I I think that's the thing stopping her from reaching her, her, her potential. And look, I think it's good enough. She could snag a French open anyway, you know, because, you know, with, with the way that the surface plays, she can hide that 
or Wimbledon or Wimbledon. She's something about those natural surfaces. She just kind of uses her athleticism. Yeah. And yeah, but it, the strokes of it all aren't as, aren't as uh, important. Yeah. I, I, I think she could snag a, uh, you know, but, but I just feel like mm, not sure. Right. And so I, I, I'd love for her to really work on that. Right. And, and, and try to figure that out. But as far as the rivalry with Coco, it looked, it looks like it could potentially be a really interesting um, set of rivalries, assuming that they can kind of continue on their trajectory and Coco can kind of, I'm sorry, Coco, Emma can get her ranking up a little bit so that they're meeting each other kind of in later rounds um, mm-hmm. in tournaments. Because I think that would have been a much more fun as a quarterfinal match or fourth round match um, than it was as, you know, such an early point in the tournament. So um, I I think it's a very potentially interesting uh uh, matchup and rivalry for the future. I'm excited about its possibility. So, um, but I also don't want to get too ahead of myself because I I was imagining the the Barty Osaka rivalry that never quite happened. You know, like it's it got started and then I was like, this mm-hmm. is a great rivalry, right? They they had that little moment in 2018, um, uh, into early 2019. Uh, another one was uh. Osaka and Andrescu. I definitely built that one up in my head. And yeah. I think they've only met one time. Yeah, exactly. Since. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, you know, we thought, well, maybe, you know, uh, Barty and, and Iga even for a little bit of time, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially when we didn't know that she was retired, right? You know, like, right. we're really, like, out of it, you know? So, um, so yeah, I just, um, I, I think it's a really good, I actually think that like the group of young people that we have coming up on both the men's and women's side is just a feast. Like I have not mm-hmm. seen this amount of energy around new youngsters kind of emerging since for a really long time, you know, in the sport. I agree. I agree. There's definitely some good energy in the 25 and under club, the people that, you know, have more years ahead of them than the, you know, I guess the 32 and up club, you know, because I feel like that's the perfect window as a professional athlete, 25, 32, you should be kind of in your stride and whatever trophies you're going to be grabbing, you should be grabbing them in that, in that time frame. Um, and there's some really, really good opportunities of, of people who could build rivalries to kind of sustain in that time frame. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to the fourth round going forward, because as we speak to each other now, the fourth round matchups are going to be concluding on the bottom half of both draws. And we're going to be moving forward to the quarterfinals and the serious end of the Grand Slam, like I like to say. Before we get into those matchups, though, I'm going to take another quick break just so we can recharge. And I'm also going to... uh, bring up a topic that me and Xavier have been talking about and kind of want to just get our feelings out on. I think it would be a good, interesting topic. So hang, hang tight. We'll be right back. All right. So we are back at it in your ears or on your speakers once again. And Xavier, I just want to look forward um, at this point going forward in the draw and see who you're thinking about maybe potentially winning the title um, or going further in quarter semis finals uh, champion. Um, which draw would you like to start with for the men or the women? Uh, let's start with the men because I think it's a little more straightforward. 
Cool. I got you. And I agree. Um, so let's start from the top half of the draw. In the fourth round, we talked earlier about Nadal's exit and that uh, top of the draw also saw Tiafo. But ultimately getting through to the quarterfinals, the two pair are Karen Hatchinoff and Sebastian Quarter out of that Nadal quarter. Um, how do you see that one potentially going? Actually, now that I say their names out loud, they kind of are similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, their game style i guess it just flashed in my eyes <laughs> yeah i mean so here's the thing i think this is going to be a situation of you know can corda bring back that level that he had against medvedev right because i felt like he won that match against her catch not playing his best honestly um so that's generally the sign of a future champion you know if you can get through mm-hmm. a difficult match um so, oh, I do have to say, Hercash definitely had some uh, brain uh, fart moments in that final set. I was like, oh, no, he'll be. <laughs> yeah. There were definitely some moments that he gifted to Sebi, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he gave Sebi a little bit of help there. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, at, at times in that fifth set. Um, so, look, I... I I just feel like I wonder how much longer can he keep it up? I look, I wouldn't be surprised if quarter won, but I feel like Hachinov is kind of in a moment where he's maximizing whatever it is that he has to give right now. You know, that semifinal run to me kind of came out of nowhere at the U S open at the U S open. Um, yeah. And now he seems to be following that. I mean, he's at least going to make the quarters, you know, here. So mm-hmm. there's clearly something going on with him as far as his performance at the slams that is laudable right um and 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 should be celebrated to see him kind of you know playing above his ranking frankly and above kind of where i thought he he was honestly um yeah so i'm gonna go with him just because i i like the experience um but i wouldn't be shocked at all of quarter one you know um particularly if he if he plays at the level that he's capable of. I don't believe that the winner of this match uh, comes out of this half, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the semifinals will be the end of the road for either one of them. Um, but I, but I, I'm a bit more to, you know, to the experience there in that Hachinov quarter. And I, I will go in the same direction with Pass, but once again, wouldn't be shocked if Laheshka got that got that victory i would be i actually would be very mm-hmm. shocked if, if sissipas can't handle the moment he's been the quarterfinals of majors before lehechka has not uh this is his first venture into the second week of a grand slam and i feel like sissipas has an opportunity here to get to a final without even playing somebody in the top 10. um so that's an opportunity there i do think I'm going to challenge your Hatchinoff pick with Sebastian Corda only for one reason. I feel like it would be wonderful if in 2023 we could get an American man to win a singles Grand Slam championship because it's been 20 years since the last person to do so. Um, and shucks, it's been since 2009 that an American man has been in a Grand Slam final of any of them. So that's even crazy to say that out loud. Um, so hopefully Sebastian Corda or even some other Americans that are um, still in the bottom half of the draw competing for spots, they may make a miracle run. and. Uh, get our first American men's championship uh, back home. So we've talked about that top half. Let's go to the bottom half of the men that are still fighting for spots into the quarterfinal. 
let's see. We have we mentioned Novak Djokovic bef- uh, before. We ha- he have Novak Djokovic facing Alex Dimonor, twenty two seed of Australia. That match presents a problem just because we know how both of their styles is, especially Alex Dimonor. He's scrappy, he gets his his racket on every ball. He's super speedy, and Novak Djokovic obviously his greatness is talked about beyond measure, as it should be to a certain extent. And uh, he's also carrying that hamstring injury, so it'll be interesting to see if he's moved all about the court due to Alex Dimonor being so scrappy, what might be uh, the outcome of that match. So I'll keep an eye on it. I don't think it'll be, it could be entertaining or it could be a bust because, you know, (laughs) that's a Djokovic match sometimes, you know? Yeah, no, and I think Djokovic is clearly making adjustments to play far more aggressively um, and trying to kind of keep, and he seems to be able to do that without, you know, completely descending into a comedy of unforced errors. So I... I, I feel like he'll get through that, but I still think that, you know, Demonar, if he can keep himself hanging around, I just, my experience with him has been that he isn't able to do that against the top players, right? Like he'll he'll hang on for a set and then usually it's like a 6-4, 6-3, the other two, mm-hmm. you know, the other two sets against the real top guys, you know, mm-hmm. Um uh, you know the the victory over Nadal, notwithstanding, and best of best of three recently. And and look, I think the one thing I will say, and I've heard this elsewhere, is he does never play Djokovic before. Um, he hasn't, as far as I can tell. Nope. And so, oh, wow. and so interesting. He doesn't have that scar tissue of like being up two sets to love and Novak, you know, inevitably coming back to beat him. Um, so. So yeah, I think it could be an interesting thing, but I, I expect Novak to make that quarterfinal. And if it's Rune, Runa, though, I think that could be that could go either way. I mean, I my question with Runa always is best three out of five. I, I just don't know quite how he performs at at that level. Um, it's one thing mm-hmm. to get it done, best two out of three, and indoor you know, as well, indoor court as well. Um, but, but he seems like he's a bit, he's, he's a bit of the real deal, unfortunately for me. And so he seems that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it though, because I completely looked over that section. <laughs> I was like, wait, Rube 11 room. Oh yeah. They still are in the draw. Yikes. It's not great. Uh, in my tennis correspondence group <laughs> journey, <laughs> but I am interested to see who wins that match because both have been to quarterfinals of a major before, but never beyond. And I feel like Rublev has experience on his side. So if he can at least get past this, it will it might sting for him. But then I feel like Rublev is is already a guy that's maximizing his talent on a week-in, week-out basis. So he like, he'll likely be fine and pick up a, a title somewhere along the line, if not two or three throughout the season. He has kind of that mentality around the sport. So I think that'll be an interesting matchup. And then the winner of Rublev and Rune gets the winner of Alex Dimonor and Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals um i'm gonna be a little bit conservative and just say novak Djokovic makes his way through the semifinals <laughs> yeah i mean even though there's question marks but you know it's hard to bet against Djokovic. come on you know um i mean especially here i think at australia open in wimbledon i just kind of pencil him in pencil you know him in. um yeah. until i see someone take him down i just you know, I mean, this is, you know, no one's been able to do that, you know, when he's been, you know, at this level and and he's clearly added wrinkles to his game late in his career um, to continue to maximize. So, yeah, I, I suspect that um, 
he'll get through, um, you know, to that, to that semifinal. And of course I actually have him making it all the way to the final. Um, but I'm curious as to what you think about the American uh, portion of the draw with these three out of four young Americans at that, um, who are here against the grizzled veteran of <laughs> Roberto Bautista Good. I'm curious as to what you think about that section. I'm going head, uh, I'm going heart over head on this one just because I'm pushing the agenda that we're going to get an American man into a, at least a final, at least a final. And I feel like we, with the combination of uh, Ben Shelton, of, uh, who just recently finished up his collegiate career at the University of Florida, is under his father and coach's tutelage. And it seems to be a really good relationship. Fun fact about Ben Shelton, a lefty, have a soft spot for them. This is also his first trip outside of the United States, like his first stamp on his passport. And here he is with an opportunity. He's already in the fourth round of a Grand Slam, which is a wonderful paycheck and exposure to the elite level of the sport. But he has an opportunity here by facing a fellow American, J.J. Wolf, who's never been this far in a Grand Slam. Uh, they both have the opportunity to be into a quarterfinal. And I feel like quarterfinals and forward are where a lot of the elite players of the game, you know, exist um, consistently. So for them to get that experience underneath their belt would be good for both of them. I'm leaning for Ben Shelton. I guess I think he's a, uh, for me, he's a more endearing personality. Um, but I, I would be uh, happy for both of them because it's a good opportunity. And I'm also pulling for Tommy Paul in that lower section, the section that saw Casper Rude get dumped out early. Um, I feel like Tommy Paul has what it takes to beat Roberto Batista Agu. Uh, I think he's consistent enough from the, from the ground to do it, has pretty good pop on his first serve. And is a he doesn't get enough credit for it as far as people you think of as fluid movers on the tour, but he's one of them. When I, when I actually watch his matches, for some reason, he doesn't get the pull in like some of the other American guys do as far as television coverage. Um, but when I do watch him, he's good. He's good. I, he, he does everything pretty well. I think he has good uh, hands at the net. Like he's just is a good all around player. So I'm hoping he can kind of have his moment in the sun a little bit brighter onto the quarterfinals as well. So that puts us with everybody, you know, we've kind of hypothetically placed either into the quarterfinals or semifinals. So I'm interested in who you think uh, or what you think the final is going to look like with all the players we mentioned left in the draw. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go very conservative um, and be boring. And I, I think it will be Djokovic playing Tsitsipas on, you know, for the final. Um I'm, I, I'd be happy to see any other combination of a, of a final, um, <laughs> meaning, you know, Djokovic against someone not Tsitsipas, let's say Korda, like do it, you know, a, a surprise and maybe a nice rematch of the Adelaide um, final. Mm, um, yeah. But um, but I, I, I just, Tsitsipas to me just seems to have a little extra something, this Australian Open. Um, and I don't know, he might end up with the dominant team storyline of like this guy that we thought would win the French Open first and, you know, mm -hmm. winning their first and perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, in the case of team may very well be his only slam um, on a hard court. Right. And um, that kind of goes against the narrative that we kind of had in place um, about the player. But he just he has this. Uh, there's something, there's a little swagger about the way he's sort of carrying himself on court um, that I think will serve him well. Um, so I expect him to be in the final against Djokovic. I think Djokovic will, will win, but, you know, I mm -hmm. expect him to make and get to that final. And I expect it to be a competitive one. Um, maybe not. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, so so I, I think it should be interesting. 
Uh, for the sake of just chaotic, chaoticism, wait, cha- whatever. For the sake of being chaotic, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Tsitsipas doesn't make the final um, and doesn't take advantage of this great opportunity and that it's Sebastian Corda versus another pick for chaos purposes only. Sebastian Corda versus Alex Demonar. Maybe this is Alex Demonar's uh, Leighton Hewitt moment, you know? Has a really, really competitive run through the final, gets to the final, maybe comes up short, or he wins the whole thing. I mean, you know, I feel like that'd be great. You know, what if, if imagine a world where there's an uh, Aussie woman that wins one year and an Aussie man that wins the next. So that'd be pretty cool. But, you know, that's, I mean, that's not real, too realistic. So if you're listening to this for betting purposes, for, for whatever reason, just don't take that advice. <laughs> but maybe you should, and you might get paid really, really well. Who knows? Sometimes sports can have, have a way of doing that. Um, so let's go over to the women's side of the draw. And actually, let's flip around this time. Let's actually talk about the players who are competing today for quarterfinal spots at the bottom half of the draw. And let's start with the section that saw Anj Jabor lose early, the number two seed. Out of that section, we have a fourth-round matchup between Donna Vekic and Linda Fruvitova of the Czech Republic. That's an interesting matchup because, again, uh, Vekic is the more seasoned player but also doesn't have that many uh, foyers into the second week of a Grand Slam, so obviously an opportunity for her. And then also for the young Czech player, uh, I believe she is – how old is Linda? She's 17 17. years old. She's 17. Yeah. Huge opportunity for her as well. Um, She has had a very interesting draw. She hasn't faced a seed yet, actually. Um, Neither has Vekage. No, I take that back. Vekage beat uh, Samson of a 6-3, 6-love, which was a great win. And um, shout out to Donna Vekage for kind of starting to right the ship of her career. Um, she was a, a player that had a lot of potential growing up. And for me personally, I liked her because she reminded me of like a 2.0 version of a player I liked back in the day. And some people know this, Nicole Vitasova. Yes, yes, yes. Love, I loved Vitasova. I, I, do you see it? Yeah, right? no, no, definitely Vitasova <laughs> vibes and with, with Fekic. Yeah, I see that. In the stroke production, kind of the physicality, mm-hmm. all of it, you know? Um, so I'm hoping for Donna to get into that quarterfinal. I think it'll be a good opportunity for both. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's been interesting, you know. Um, Vekic had fallen out of the top 100 at one point, right? Um, and you just kind of thought, you know, someone that talented. I understand if they're not a top 10 player, but come on, you know, they should be able to, you know, stay in the top 100. So I'm glad that she's kind of had this rejuvenation over the last year. Really start to pick up some good results towards the end of last year. Um, and is now working with Pam Shriver, which that seems to have been a productive, um, you know, a partnership so far, you know? Um, so yeah, she's looked good. I mean, I thought she looked good at United Cup um, and she's she's looked good here and I expect her to make that quarterfinal. I think she should, but you know, it's women's tennis and it's been an open field for quite some time <laughs> yeah. now. So anything could happen. Uh right right above them in this uh still bottom half of the draw is number five seed Arena Sabalenka and number twelve seed Belinda Benches going at it for a spot in the quarterfinals. I feel like this is the most electric and eyes go to this matchup on this day of the draw. Um so I'm interested to see how that gets underway in actually a couple of hours now. But are they first up? Uh, I don't okay. have the schedule okay. right on me. I can look it up. But um, in just in terms of the matchup, I'm not even actually sure how many times they played, but something about the matchup on paper is intriguing. Oh, just absolutely. because how of how Benchich takes pace and how Sabalenka produces pace. 
Um, so I think it should be very interesting to see who goes on to that uh, to that victory. And whoever wins should ultimately be playing a high enough level to go even further, I think. so. Yeah, that would be my expectation. I think the, the semifinalist comes out of this match. Um, I think there's also the intriguing thing. I don't know how exactly to explain, but the intriguing thing of Sabalenka's former coach now being with Benchich. Right. And so every time that she kind of looks over there, you know, she's seen this person who kind of knows some things about her and her game quite intimately. Right. Who's now advising this other player. Um, So um, I think it's an interesting contrast of someone who, when things are going well, is an amazing server, great offense. Right. Um, Very aggressive player against someone who's a bit more of a, you know, has an amazing return. You know, um, probably one of the most elite returns in in women's tennis, and is you know is going to be redirecting that pace and you know take you know doing a lot of things like that. Um, traditionally in tennis, offense wins championships, not defense. Um, <laughs> and so I'm gonna go with Sabalenka getting through this and going all the way to the semis. I actually did not pick her to win because I think she'll lose to Garcia, but we'll talk about that other side of the draw. Okay. Um, but I, um, but I do think that, but I wouldn't be shocked if she made it all the way to the final and won the championship, given the form that she's in. I think for me, I, I just, I've seen her melt down in those semifinal matches way too often now um she's zero and three yeah, yeah and and she she's been ahead in it in the last two of them i don't know about the first all of them all three of them all she's of them, been ahead. all of them have gone three sets and she's had opportunities in all three yeah. yeah um but wasn't she up a break in both of them at the in the in, in the u.s open yeah, ones yeah, yeah almost yeah, certain yeah. yeah so so i just uh that 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 just lingers in the back of my mind a little bit um and so that's why i don't I, look, I think if she plays anyone other than Garcia in that semifinal, she beats them. But I, I don't like the matchup with Garcia. Um, um, I can see that because yeah. it's 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 primarily strong return versus strong serve, and sometimes the return can definitely combat a uh, strong serve, especially if your serve has gotten a whole lot better for Sabalenka. But it's still, you know, it, I can imagine just because you're only twelve months away from having a really, really egregious time up at the service line, it could still kind of show its ugly side at any, any point. And Garcia is definitely going to put the pressure on her as she will on her fourth round opponent, Magdalene, who's a surprise package, but a decent player in her own right. I feel like Garcia should get through this. She had a little bit of a scare in the previous round, losing a set to Laura Sigamund. But I feel like that's good in the overall span of things because Garcia is one of those players, I feel like, when things go too wrong in her career, she's often not been able to write the ship yeah. at all. Yeah. And she kind of just spirals and that kind of lasts for certain matches, not even, not even just one yeah. uh, other matches. Um, but she kind of righted the ship against Sigamund, dropping the first set six, one and going on to win six, three, six, three. I think even if something happens similarly against Lynette, she should be able to get through that just for sake of uh firepower that Lynette doesn't have. And Garcia does possess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm, I'm with you. I actually, um, I, I, I think she'll get to this quarterfinal. Um, I, I think that the match against Sigmund was good for her managing her nerves. 
um, which is always the issue, you know, with with hers. Um, and the, I, I think the other issue is that obviously, given that very high risk, high reward game that she plays, if it's just a little off, you know, on, on a certain day, it can descend into a, you know, into a, a bit of a an ugly performance, honestly. Um, and and so. Obviously, you don't know what's going to happen, but I feel like she's working with a lot of confidence right now. And so I think that we'll see her through, um, you know, this portion of the draw. But I don't want to overlook Plishkova and Zhang. I don't want to overlook them either, but they are two surprise packages to this part of the of the draw. Pliskova has been on a check planet all on her own for a couple of months, I think. And I'm surprised that she's even at the 30 seed mark. Mm-hmm. There's been some withdrawals to kind of help her out a little bit. But um, yeah, she's 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 lucked up a lot from the number eight seed, Kasakina being out in the first round. Um she had her pigeon in the second round, Putintova, who she's never lost to. Mm-hmm. And then Zhang benefited from Kudermatova uh, losing out early. And Zhang has actually only dropped one set uh, early on in the first round. So she, they're both playing well. It's an opportunity for both of them to add another quarterfinalist uh, to their resume. I think Pliskova gets through that one. And it'll be interesting how she views her opportunity to, to even go further, because I would, I would imagine, not that she's old by any stretch of the imagination in tennis. I don't even think she's 32 yet. But the opportunities seem fleeting, you know? So if she wants to finally get that, oh, I never want a Grand Slam off of my back, here's an opportunity to at least get to a a quarterfinal and beyond even if she wants to, you know? So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm favoring her to get past Shang as well. Um, And then I don't expect her to get past Garcia. And I think the reason why I also favor Garcia over... Um, I'm assuming I'm assuming here a Garcia Sabalenka semi, which I think will be a great match if they both show up. I would love to see yeah. it. Yeah. If they both show up. That's my pick. Right. Um even if they don't, I feel like you know there'll be no uh felt left on the ball. Yeah, that's here, so. true. That's true. Um <laughs> and I think the only reason why I'm giving the slight edge to Garcia is because I think the combination of the serve and her aggressive play when she's serving, along with her ability to cause some trouble in her return games. Um, will will be will will serve her well against someone like Sabalenka. But once again, I would not be shocked if Sabalenka made the final. I'm pushing for it. Either one of them can make the final, and I would be happy out of the outcome of that. Um, I really would. I think it's an opportunity for both. So I'm going to see how they both kind of hit their way through the nerves if they come up. Um, and then let's quickly go up to the top half of the draw that was anchored by Iga Swiatek. Uh, we haven't talked about her yeah. at all, I don't believe. Um, interesting, because she's a number one player. But she did look really good up until she faltered in the fourth round against Elena Rabakina. And I feel like Rabakina um, poses a couple of different problems in that matchup. Because one, she's a power player and can kind of open up a point with one swipe of her racket, especially on the forehand cross court, which she played brilliantly in that matchup against Swiatek. And also, Rabakina seems to... To be on a, I'm gonna show you guys what's up kind of tour. Um, yeah, because she won yeah. Wimbledon and then lost the first round of the US Open. And in between that time, there weren't any other additives to her narrative besides just being a Wimbledon champion, and she didn't get any points, so her ranking didn't shoot up to like a top 10 seed at a major. So people have been putting her on outside courts, and she kind of feels a certain type of way about that. And she's voiced it. I have my opinions about that, but we won't get into them today. Um, but she's playing well and motivated, you know. Um 
Um, she said as much in her press conferences. So, I'm, you know, that was a good win for her, especially against a two-time Grand Slam champion, three-time Grand Slam champion against a Wimbledon champion in the fourth round. Would have liked for it to be later in the draw, but, you know, this is women's tennis. This is what this is what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I didn't know if Rubakina would be able to make it to that point in the draw, but I thought mm. that, because I feel like I had someone beating her before. Maybe I had her losing to Collins. Yeah, I think I had her losing to Collins um, in my in my brackets initially. Um, I didn't really realize the extent to which Collins was kind of dealing with that injury. I probably wouldn't have gone so high on her um, had I known mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, to her credit, she took a set off of Rubakina and made that you know, at least somewhat uncomfortable for Elena for a little bit of time. But um, she's just giving me that glint that she kind of had in her eye during Wimbledon. She's mm-hmm. just giving me that, you know, s- you know, silent assassin, you know, I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm coming through and no one's really paying attention to me until they, they are. And just about Iga, just really quickly, I think she's the kind of player that reminds me about Ash, like Ash Barty in a sense of like, they look unbeatable until they don't. Right. You know, and then and then they're in the loss kind of comes, <laughs> you know, a little perplexed, but you kind of see how it happens, right? Um mm-hmm. and um look, I Rubakana is very aggressive on her second serve return, and so she was able to really push Iga um with that. So I felt that she had the tools to compete, but she held her nerve, she she just uh, she just played with, I don't know, there's something extra there that I wasn't seeing at the U.S. Open that I really haven't seen since Wimbledon, you know, from her. Um, and so I I like her um, to now get through to the semi, um, honestly. But it's also that situation where which Ostapenko shows up, right? Mm. You know, if it's the Ostapenkos who's just hitting the court cover off the ball and hitting <laughs> and hitting into all the corners, right? Like doing both right, of those right. things simultaneously, right? Creating these amazing angles. There's a there's almost a sellish like quality to to Ostapenko's play at times. It reminds me of Monica. Um and I just, you know, if she comes there and she's able to just do that and you know hit enough winners. Um, you know, she can take it out. Happen. She can take out. <laughs> she can take out Rebekina. I think that anybody, she can take out. Anybody. She really can take out anybody, really. right? So, I, I, I'm putting my money on Rebekina, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if Ostapenko came through on that top portion there. You know, for for sake of time, I'm gonna um, just assume that Pagula gets to the semifinal and assume that she went because she's she's surrounded by really big, strong hitters from the baseline. I'm going to assume that her consistency and ability to match pace gets her all the way to the final. And I really want to see how that matches up against Sabalenka. Okay. I feel like that'd be very interesting, especially because Pagula has also quoted in saying something along the lines of actually naming Rabaka Nastapenko Sabalenka as really good players that she, she admires for their ability to kind of hit through the court and how tough they are to play, but she also still enjoys playing them. So I'm, I'm interested to see what a, another, there goes another American in a grand slam final. Um, and she's been knocking on the door for Gula. Obviously she has a, a tough test against Azarenka, but just, you know, just for the sake of a little chaos, but controlled chaos, because uh, they're two top two top ten seeds, Pagula versus Sabalenka in my final sounds fun. What a, who's in your final? I'm going Garcia against Rebekina. 
Okay, that would be fun too. Yeah. That would be fun. I mean, that uh-huh. that'd be Garcia's opportunity to kind of like you know quell the 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 media as far as will she be the person that lives up to her potential that Andy Murray set for, her. and then Rabakana will be able to kind of um, right the ship in her in her regard. Be like, hey, I'm not just a fluke Grand Slam winner. I earned this, and I can do it again if I want to. You know, yeah. so yeah. that'll be that'll that'll be interesting i think we've set ourselves up for an interesting next week of the australian open so i mean uh, if everything that we've kind of wanted in both of our worlds if that if that comes true i think i'll be a happy camper and can say that the australian open was one of the best that i've watched um so before we head out of here i wanted to engage with you on a conversation and i posed you know the question to you prior to us jumping on the podcast but i just wanted to get your opinion on something i'm noticing in the dialogues i'm having in the tennis world and i've noticed it quite a lot in this particular grand slam because i feel like now that we're officially on the other side of a season that will not include roger and serena and in a season that sees rafa hampered and then to a certain extent, Novak dealing with his own injuries. There's a new um, influx of faces that are coming out of the woodwork to a certain degree. We mentioned it earlier as far as the energy that's surrounding that. But I think there are there's some competing energy. I think there's a competing energy from people who are established and seasoned fans of the sport who aren't really in a very accepting mind frame as far as accepting the newcomers and also being really, really harsh on newcomers basically trying to get them to measure up to the past success of the big three and Serena or in Venus to that, to that extent. And in reality, I feel like there's much more competition that they really um, have to go through to get to the likes of those numbers. And even still, even if they don't get to those numbers, we've been spoiled to a, a large degree by the amount of championship winning performances we've seen from the big three and the Williams sisters. And there's just, like I said before, there's this competing energy that kind of just seems harsh and full of and just full of negative energy towards the new faces instead of just being accepting so i was wondering how you felt about that and do you kind of see it the same way yeah yeah i do see it i mean i i think that we've been really spoiled with this sort of um particularly on the men's side with the kind of consistency of the big three slash four like even if you think about that time when murray was kind of you know these guys were making basically semifinals of every slam right you know um um, and I just think that that level of consistency was not something that was that common before they emerged, you know, um, you know, you think about the way Pete Sampras struggled at the French Open and, you know, Agassi had a very up and down career um, and, and, and so forth. Um, and so I think that we should give people the grace, you know, that um, and I think we should understand that that kind of consistent high top end performances that we saw from the likes of the big three slash four, or even Serena when she was kind of at her most consistent best um, is probably not likely to be reproduced uh, again soon. And I think that we have to just as fans accept that. And, um, and, you know, I'm always about trying to, and, and that's not to say there's not space for valid criticism, um, mm-hmm. but, right. but I, but I, but I do think that I do think that there's a an unnecessary negativity around some of the younger players and what they can and can't accomplish. And I think that, you know, we just have to remind people, you know, 300 plus weeks at number one is unusual. You know, uh, <laughs> right. 20 Grand Slam titles is unusual, much less 
even even one grand slam every season exactly exactly multiple grand slams every season that was not happening before we got the trifecta of the big three along with the williams sisters you know like backing up grand slams being defending champion is something that they kind of revolutionized and became a norm when it really isn't that much of a norm in tennis yeah yeah so i think that um so i think that we should have that grace you know um and also understand that we don't the story gets written at the end of it or the story gets told at the end and i think there's a lot of trying to front load the stories we just don't know like we don't know what's going to happen with someone like a Tsitsipas or a Sinner or an Alcaraz, you know, let's, let's let the story unfold, you know? Um, and um, yeah, I think that some of that inconsistency is to be expected um, and is not necessarily a harbinger of poor quality in the sport. It doesn't mean just because you, I mean, granted, this word is used a lot on the Twitter, in the tennis Twitter sphere or just tennis world, like a flop, Yeah, you know, yeah. And it's funny. It's funny sometimes because, players do have flop moments, you know, either with a bad shot or a bad performance in a match. Um, I just, I just think that there's a, a rush to, to like call somebody a flop that didn't necessarily uh, measure up to their performance in the same tournament the last year um, and not enough um, un- understanding of the players that are currently playing well now, even if they aren't established household names or even established consistent champions, they're still in the higher ranks for a reason. So I, I kind of want people to stop being unnecessarily hesitant to get to get to know the new stars of the sport and really lean into the journey we're all about to go in as tennis fans as a, and as a tennis community. Even outside the tennis community, I think there's a lot of potential for the energy that we've talked about multiple times from these youngsters to really bring in a new wave of the sport, whether it be um, point construction or uh, how we watch. I mean, that's changing too. We've talked about it at the top of the show with ESPN and their broadcasting and stuff like that. A lot of different things are subject to change in the next couple of years of tennis. And I feel like that this time with the new stars, we have Alcarez, we have uh, Rune, we've mentioned, we have Felix Ajay Aliassime on the men, on the men's side. We have Center as well. Um, on the women's side, there's Coco Golf. There's even Ostapenko to a certain extent is not some household name that's kind of, you know, showing that she can uh, rally with the best of them when she wants to. Coco Raducanu. Oh, look at that. I, I made it a rivalry name just that easily. Um, Raducanu um, and just a whole host of other names that a lot of people are kind of like, huh, who's that? Mm-hmm. At, a, at the end of stage, at the end of stage of a grand slam, but have serious credentials to their name and have worked just as hard as the people that came before them to make it that far. So I feel like we should give them their respect. And on top of all of that, like I, I'm kind of on this, uh, this wave of respecting the tennis players because they really sacrifice so much and shout out to Mackenzie McDonald, who posted this on his Instagram, Mackenzie McDonald, we mentioned him earlier is the, uh, uh, the Slayer, I guess you could say, Rafael Nadal. But he, I guess it was him or his graphics team put a really wonderful graphic. And I'll try to link it in the show notes as well so you can go check it out. He put together a graphic of how often he actually was in a plane throughout the entirety of the season and where he, his plane dropped off, what countries it was in, what continents it was in. It was a really nice graphic of him traveling in a plane all around the globe. And for whatever reason, it just kind of hit me like, these players are required to do quite a bit of traveling and on top of that perform. And just as, you know, 
average guys like ourselves, I'm sure we play tennis and are active in our own rights, but to literally be able to, to literally have to travel from say California to Asia yeah. in a span of like a week and then be expected to play an elite level tennis match is a lot harder than I think we give the tennis players credit for. And they're expected to do that at any moment's notice to kind of keep up with the, the, uh, the hamster wheel of, of professional tennis. So we have to give them a grace, like you said, to deal with all of that and then also perform in spite of all of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that we also have to keep in mind how social media has changed the way that we engage these players and, and the kind of pressures that players are under, you know, um, with players kind of getting all of these horrible messages after they lose or 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 whatever, right? That's not something that typically back in previous generations had to deal with in quite the same way. And I'll just say that, you know, having cycled through a couple different generations of the sport, I think there's always that tension about like, what's going to happen after McEnroe, Connors, Borg, you know, well, mm-hmm. you know, the next group came through, right? Your Lindell, your V-Lander. Yeah, it always happens. Lindell, V-Lander, yeah. Becker, Edberg. Oh, what's going to happen after them? Well, then we get Sampras and Agassi. And then what's going to happen after them? Well, we got Federer and Nadal. So I think we'll get we'll get what we what's coming to us but we have to be patient and and wait for it to happen we have to be patient like i said before i think we have to lean into the process and and um be excited for the journey you know because i mean at one point all the names that we talk about as just established champions weren't they weren't they had to do the hard work they had to win the matches to get to the point where we really lauded them the way that we do and i think we're in the beginning of a lot of players starting that process or beginning the journey like i said um and you know speaking of journeys i appreciate you coming on to the show and leaning into the podcast journey with me i think this has been a great show i'm glad that we were able to kind of uh go back and forth on that topic and all the other topics that we've talked about uh thus far in the australian open um for those who want to be able to kind of follow your work and your um, critiques and acknowledgement of the sport, where could they follow you on social media? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at XmanPhD. Um, and that's probably where I do most of my tennis discussion. So <laughs> the other social media aren't as important. I don't really use Instagram to talk about tennis. So <laughs> I do. I feel like people, people, people love visuals these yeah. days. So I kind of gotta I have to meet them where they are, yeah. you know, and, and lean in, lean into that journey as well. Um, but yeah, it's been a great conversation. Like I said at the very top, I really do appreciate um your interest and your dialogue and the way you kind of like i've said before lean into the conversations that i have have and questions i pose on twitter and i appreciate you being a part of the uh tuned into tennis digital community and i'm looking forward for, to get you back on the podcast again because it's like you give me a good run for my money <laughs> okay okay that's great well i've enjoyed the conversation as well thank you for uh having me on and of course we'll probably meet uh, again quickly in the the social media universe. Um, but yeah, we, we will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been fun guys. I will catch you guys on the next episode. Peace out. Take care.